Okay, this is John 5, 1 through 15. Hear now God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has, had, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to them, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Well, John 5 is right after uh, in John 5 and John 4, looking at the context of John, the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus heals uh, Herod's official, his court, court official who was very high up. This is John 4. And his court official, Herod's court official, was very high up, politically strong, wealthy guy. He comes to Jesus. Uh, he could have afforded the best physicians, so he does that, and none of the best, even best physicians could heal his son, so he comes desperately to Jesus, and Jesus heals his son, right? Okay, and that's kind of the context of John 4 when we get into John 5, so it's interesting. So here we have this powerful, influential official of Herod who cannot fix his son, so he humbles himself, comes to Jesus, submits his power and his authority and his influence to Jesus, and humiliates himself, and Jesus heals his son, okay? So we see that in, despite all of his resources and his power, he could not heal his son, and so uh, he's desperate, right? And so that's what, we, what you see in John 4, but when you get into John 5, like we just read, you'll see that John kind of gives us these case studies, and here we meet this guy who's completely opposite of the man you meet in John 4, this wealthy official. In John 5, we meet a desperate man, and so in John 4, we meet a desperate man who is not comfortable, right? He's broken. Here we meet a desperate man, and despite of all of his desperation, he's comfortable. It's kind of interesting. John gives us a little bit of an irony here. So that's what we're going to look at this morning in this story. This man who, in all of his desperation, you would think he would want help. Really, in all of his desperation, he was comfortable. And so here is this man that John introduces to us this morning who has been lame. He, he's maybe not able to walk, but in some way he's handicapped for 38 years. He's sitting beside this pool, and Jesus comes and deals with this guy. He's not very excited about meeting Jesus and having this prospect of being healed. So we're going to see three things this morning, if you're taking notes. The problem of comfort. The problem of comfort, or the danger of comfort and ease. The second thing we'll see is the problem or the danger of fear and goodness. And then thirdly, the problem or the danger of freedom. So let's first of all look at this problem of comfort. So Jesus comes here. He comes from Cana of Galilee where he healed the official son in John 4. He's coming into Jerusalem. All of the Jews are there to celebrate the 
Jewish pilgrimage feast. And so there was going to be a large crowd there in Jerusalem, a large crowd of Jews going to the temple. So Jesus knew that. Large crowds would be there. It would be an opportunity for him to really minister to the Jews and express to them that he indeed is the Messiah. And so we pick up from verse 2, and look at what he says here in verse 2 of John 5. He says, Now there was a Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. Verse 3, And these lay a multitude of invalids, blame, blame, uh, blind, blind, not lame, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now let's just stop for a minute. Did you notice when we read John 5, that you had verse 2, right? You had verse 3. And then you have verse 5. Did you notice that? Look in your Bibles. Read right there. Does anybody see verse 4 in here? Does anybody have a footnote in their Bible that has, okay, yeah. You're probably using the NIV 84 version, right? Okay. The NIV 84 version gives you the footnote. But it's interesting, most of our versions, the Pew Bible in front of you, if you've read that, has verse 2, verse 3. Where did verse 4 go, right? Is it a problem with the uh, copy machine, right? No, it's interesting that there is no verse 4. Did they purposely leave out verse 4? Oh gosh, what's wrong with God's word here? Well, many of your Bibles will include verse 4 in the footnotes at the bottom of your page, and that kind of gives context to the story and gives particular context to the guy's reply to Jesus in verse 7. But the missing verse 4, if you don't have the footnote, let me read to you what the missing verse 4 says so you'll know. Missing verse 4 reads, For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season in the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirrings of the water was healed. Whatever disease, he said. Why does most of our Bibles not include verse 4? Well, if you go back to the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, extant manuscripts of the Greek uh, New Testament, they don't include this verse. Now, why is that? Well, likely... Back then, you know, they didn't have copy machines. They didn't have word, not even word processors. God, I'm dating myself. They didn't have Microsoft Word and nice computers. They would have scribes who would hand write, hand translate and write these manuscripts. So likely, a scribe back then took verse, created verse 4 as a commentary almost to help us, the audience who's reading John, understand what was going on at this pool Bethesda. It was this editorial comment, if you will, to help us, the readers, understand this legend. Because all the ingredients here are ripe for a legend. And the legend had it that this pool of Bethesda, which was in the city of Jerusalem near the temple, legend had it that an angel would come and touch the surface of that water, and the water would ripple. And if you were a diseased or lame person, a handicapped person sitting by the pool, if you saw that water rippled, and you somehow were able to get into that pool or somebody moved you into that pool, you would be miraculously healed, okay? That was the legend, right? So all the ingredients were right here for this legend. And so that legend of this miracle waters here at Bethesda had spread over the city and the surrounding countryside. And actually, the Jews, if you go back and read about the ancient Jews, they were very preoccupied, many, with this understanding of angelology, the study of angels. And so it was very quite natural, actually, for the Jews in this area, for this legend to be born. In fact, archaeologists, this is interesting, back in the late 1800s, they discovered, they, they uh, dug up this site and found the Pool of Bethesda. And on one of the surviving walls by the Pool of Bethesda is a fresco of an angel troubling the waters. So it's interesting that even that there was a legend back then of this angel troubling the waters. 
So enough people bought into this legend that if you were sick and you come by this pool of Bethesda and the, and the surface of the water was troubled, uh, you could be healed. What turns out that the troubling of that water was most likely due to a subterranean spring that was coming up and feeding that pool of water. The people, especially those by that pool, believed that this legend was real. And so they were a bit superstitious, if you will. It means their hope really wasn't in God. Their hope was in what? The pool. Their hope was in the angel coming and stirring the waters. Their hope was in that God would send this angel to serve water, stir, stir the water. And then if you could get in that pool and be first to be in the pool, you could be healed. Now another curious thing about this pool and where it was actually located here, this pool of Bethesda, the pool was located by what's called the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. Cities back then had different gates. You had the Sheep Gate, you had the Fish Gate, you had the Trash Gate, if you will. No Water Gate. Sorry, bad joke. Sorry, okay. Y'all awake this morning? Come on, that was funny. That was funny, okay. So anyway, they had the Sheep Gate. Now what was the Sheep Gate all about back then in Jerusalem? Well, this is a place where if you are a Jew and you were celebrating the Passover, you would go to the Sheep Gate and you would buy a sheep. If you could afford a sheep or a lamb, you would lead that sheep back to the temple and that sheep was sacrificed uh, so that your sin could be atoned for. So if you were to take a map of first century Jerusalem, you would see that you had to walk right past this pool, this pool Bethesda, to go to the Sheep Gate and buy a sheep. Now, there's some tremendous irony here. Think about this. Here, Jesus, he shows up in the midst of this multitude, in the midst of this multitude of six folks. He picks this one man, he heals him, and then the Pharisees, who we're going to talk more about their reaction to this whole situation next week, but the Pharisees begin to attack Jesus, right, for healing this man on the Sabbath. Now, if the Sheep Gate was where all of the religious folks, the Pharisees, the Jews, the devout Jews, the ones worshiping God, they would walk by the Sheep Gate. They would walk, walk by this, these large pools of Bethesda so that they could uh, go and, and purchase the sheep. Here you have all of these religious people walking by the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And yet they're going and buying sheep and sacrificing them without apparently even taking notice of all of those folks, those afflicted folks by the pool, what's going on around them. In fact, they would seem to be more defined by their goodness. Oh, we've got to be good Jews and sacrifice our sheep more than they were defined by their mercy. You know what Bethesda literally means? It means house of mercy. Interesting. And yet many of them walking by not paying attention or showing mercy to those who are sick or poor. So in the midst of all of this, Jesus comes onto the scene and he surveys this crowd of hurting folks about the pool. Notice that he doesn't begin healing folks in mass, right? He comes and he chooses this one guy. We don't know why he chooses him. I think it's because he gives us a great case study here of our own affliction. So here we have this lame man who's been an invalid for 38 years. He's been suffering for 38 years. And notice the question Jesus asks him. Do you want to get well, right? Do you want to get well? Do you think that's a dumb question? Of course he would want to get well, right? I've been an invalid for 38 years. Of course I want to get well. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ask such an obvious question for a guy who's been suffering for 38 years, right? It almost seems a little ridiculous, right? You know, I've learned in life that there are just some questions that you don't ask people. Take, for instance, fishing. I love to fish. If you love to fish, do you go to the dock, you know, the guy's pulling in his boat, you never, I mean, just trust me, you never ask a fisherman where the fish are biting, right? 
Isn't that true? Because he's not going to tell you. Or he'll, or he'll lie to you. Oh, yeah, man, they're biting great. They're right over there. And you go over there and you don't catch a thing. He's not going to reveal his favorite fishing spot. You just don't ask a fisherman where the fish bite are, right? Same thing if you're driving down the road and you see somebody broken down on the side of the road with their hood open. You don't stop and say, is something wrong with your car? Obviously something's wrong with their car, right? Or you don't go to the hospital. I've done this before. It's you know, embarrassing. We were first in seminary and you're learning about hospital visitation and you go to the hospital and you ask somebody, hey, do you want to get well? I mean, of course they want to be well. They don't want to be in the hospital. Nobody enjoys hospital food that much, right? So look at this man's response. Jesus goes and asks him this obvious question, sir, do you want to be well? And he responds, verse 7. Look at his response here, 7 and following. He says, the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, and while I'm going, another one steps in and kind of beats me to the punch. Jesus said, get up, get up, take up your bed and walk. And once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. But notice his answer. Jesus says, do you want to be well? And look at his lengthy answer. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Another one beats me to it. I don't know about you, but to me, it sounds like he's almost making an excuse. It's almost like he gives a rather non-committal answer to Jesus. You would think if you had been lame, struggling for 38 years, your answer would have been simply what? Yes, right? Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? That's a yes or no question. But it's almost like he's saying, Jesus, if you knew how hard it was for me here, you would understand why I'm not well, right? It's almost like he's trying to divert Jesus' response. And I think, you know what? We're, I'm guilty of this. How I try to divert God's coming after me at times. God, I, I'm a ch- I am the chief excuse maker here at I think we do that with people in our relationships, right? We make excuses. When we're struggling in a relationship with someone, we make excuses. We make it, how many of you make excuses with your spouse when you're cold busted by your spouse? And you immediately are busted by your parents. Immediately jump to making excuses. And so Jesus, we do that. We try to keep God at bay by making excuses. We try to keep people at bay by making excuses. But Jesus comes to us in the gospel and asks us very plainly, do you want to give up? And I think few things hamper the work of Christ in our lives more than our response, the way we respond to this question that Jesus poses to us. Do you want to be well? Now I say, of course I want to be well, Jesus. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of my struggles. I'm tired of being a so-so husband. Or I'm tired of being a so-so father. I'm tired of being angry at people. Or just when I think I'm not struggling with anger, God brings a situation into my life where I get angry. You know, my, uh, we have a dog, Chocolate Lab named Cooper, who's about a year and a half old now. And he recently got in trouble with the law. He really did. The police were called on my dog. So I have a dog who's a lawbreaker you now. But it's, he, because he wandered over like any dog wants to go and you know, fraternize with his dog friends, the neighbors, and so he did. And my neighbor got tired of my dog fraternizing with his dogs. And so the police were called, and I had to go and meet the officer at the end of the driveway. And that neighbor came and, and was just not very particularly nice about that situation. I tried to be kind and nice to him, and my wife tried to be kind and nice to him, but he was just an angry fellow, right? And so he goes back to his home, and so now I'm like, just when I feel like everything's peachy with my neighbors, all of a sudden I have to deal with anger, <laughs> you know, with my neighbor. And so now every day I have to drive by that neighbor's house and pray for him because I have this welling up anger over something so silly. Golly, you know, just when I feel like I'm fine, 
another situation that's brought into my life and I see the sickness in my heart. Hear this guy, and often we do this, but Jesus, you just don't understand me, Jesus. You know, if you knew how hard my life was, Jesus, if you knew, if you knew how I just had it in my life, if you knew what my life was like in the past, you know, that's why I struggle so much. And yet Jesus does know all of this stuff about us, and yet he still asks this question, do you want to be well, right? Well, why would Jesus ask this man? Why would Jesus ask us such a plain question, do you want to be well? Here's why I think one of the reasons he does that. It's because I think all of us are often far too comfortable in our brokenness. We're far too comfortable in our brokenness. You know, it's one thing to be comfortable with your brokenness, right? And I think being a mature Christian as you grow in your faith, as you grow in your love for the Lord, God graciously uncovers more of your sin, uncovers more of your brokenness, and you're comfortable with that in a sense. You, you, you want to be free from sin. You want to be free from struggles, but you realize you've owned that you are a sinner in desperate need of the mercy of Christ, right? That's a good place to be. So it's one thing to be comfortable with your brokenness. It's a whole other thing to be comfortable in your brokenness. And I think many are comfortable in their brokenness. They're in this prison of sin. They're in this prison of brokenness. They're in this prison of bitterness, of anger, of excuse making this prison of addiction and we think that prison is a horrible thing right but then you begin to think well at least it's my prison right at least i know every square inch of it and no one can come in and bother me and disturb me in my little prison where i isolate myself so yeah you don't live this exciting or glorious life but yes you live a guarded life and you like your guarded life you like your comfortable brokenness and that's what Jesus was getting at with this guy. Listen, I don't, your biggest issue is not the, the issue that you've been lame for 38 years. Your heart, your soul is far more lame and broken than your body. Do you really want to get well? And I think this guy was more comfortable with his disability, the familiarity of his disability of these 38 years being disabled than he was with wanting to really be set free. He was more comfortable in his desperation and having to follow Jesus. He's more comfortable with the issues of his own heart and brokenness than having to surrender his life to Jesus. And you know what the problem is when we make excuses to Jesus? He's heard them all. <laughs> He's heard every single one of the excuses we make. And not only has he heard all of the excuses that we often give him, but he's experienced them all as well, right? Take this one for instance. <laughs> Oh God, you, I can't follow you. I can't serve you because I've been rejected by my family. I have lots of father wounds and family wounds. What did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus, I'm the object of scorn. I've sinned and people know about it, right? And, and I'm just the object of scorn around the, the, the home and around the, my neighbors and around my friends. Jesus said, said that they have spat upon me. I'm betrayed by my friends. You know, I've been betrayed by somebody that I care about and I love. They re betrayed me. They rejected me. Jesus says, well, I understand. My family accused, accused me of being crazy, right? You see, you name it. Jesus has experienced it. Hebrews says that he is our high priest who is fully able to sympathize with all the weaknesses. So I ask you Jesus' question this morning. Do you want to be well? Do you want to get well? You know, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you want to be well? That's a question that you need to keep asking yourself. Do you really want to be well? Do I rest in the forgiveness and the righteousness I have?
Christ, right? In fact, I think you need to even keep asking yourself that question. I think, really, Jesus is saying, not only do you want to be made well, but Jesus is saying, do you really want to know your own heart? Do you really want to know who you really are? Because the more you know Christ, the more you grow in your relationship with the Lord, the more broken and desperate you really realize you are. So God uncovers, just like he did with me and my neighbor, he uncovered once again, I still struggle with anger. I still struggle with bitterness. And it was a brief two-minute interaction with my neighbor. And here I am having to repent every time I drive by his house. Good grief, Lord, I've been a Christian for 25-plus years. Surely I should be over that now. You're not, right? You see, we often try to cover over our sin. We try to often cover over our, our mess with niceties, don't we? And yet Jesus sees right through that. And I think many of us, the reason we don't feel God's power, the reason we don't feel God's peace, the reason you don't really feel the authenticity of grace or you have little power or peace in your life is because you're not comfortable with owning your sin. You're not comfortable with God really coming in and uncovering your heart. You want just enough of Jesus to be comfortable. I think that's an, in, an indictment for many Christians here in the United States. Maybe many of you here at Wellspring. You want just enough of Jesus so that you're comfortable. But yet there's no real power in your life. There's no real peace in your life. Answer Jesus with no excuses. He's coming to you this morning telling you, asking you, friends, do you want to be Don't make excuses. Yeah, Jesus, I do. I'm tired of hiding tired of covering my life in niceness. So Jesus comes and he exposes this uh, lame man's comfort life. And then he moves on and he takes that drill even deeper. And not only does he begin to expose his comfort, but he begins to expose his fear and even his goodness. And he really begins to expose the goodness, this idol of goodness that the Pharisees are going to be struggling with. And we'll see that more next week. So Jesus comes to this man and says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once he's healed and he takes up his bed and he leaves, right? Now notice that Jesus healed this guy and this lame man doesn't really demonstrate any faith right here, at least, that we can see. He simply stands up and he walks, right? Walks away. Now what's the problem? He walks away and he doesn't follow Jesus. You would think, here he's been healed 38 years of struggle. You would think, after being healed, just like that, he's able to get up and walk. He's fully healthy. He's fully energized that he would follow the Lord Jesus, right? And when we see that in Mark 5, when Jesus heals the guy, demoniac, right? who's cutting himself with stones. He's wailing. The, the whole village can't even deal with him, so they kick him out of the city, and he's living in the tombs, and Jesus comes and he heals him. And what's the guy's response? Jesus, please let me go with you. I want to follow you all the days of my life. You would think this guy, after 38 years, he's healed, would come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you all the days of my life. But what does he do? He gets up and he walks away, right? See, Jesus had healed him of his disability, but he had also evicted him out of his comfort. See, he healed him of his disability, but he kicked him out. He evicted him out of his comfort. So I think he was resentful. And yet Jesus wasn't done with him yet. See, this wasn't his only encounter with Jesus. We see that in a few verses later. Jesus had more to do with this guy, dealing with just his problem of comfort, also dealing with problems of fear and goodness. 
So look at verses 10 through 13. Let's see what the rest of the story says. So the Jews said to the man, he'd been healed, right? And he goes, the, the religious police, the Pharisees, the Jews kind of catch him in the act of carrying his mat. So the Jews said to him, verse 10, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful, you, lawful for you to take up your bed or your mat. But he answered them, the man who healed me, this man told me, take up your bed and walk. The man, verse 13, the, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. Right? So here the Pharisees catch him carrying his mat. You would think they, you know, the religious people had walked by this pool of Bethesda for many, many years. They would have seen this guy. He'd said he had been there for years, right, trying to get healed. The religious people, the Pharisees, would have seen this guy. They would have known who he was, right? Just like if you go into Roanoke, sometimes you see some of the same homeless folks. There's one that I've gotten to know. Every time I go downtown, I see him and I talk to him. Super friendly guy. I know who he is, right? These Pharisees would have known who this guy was as they were walking by the pool of Bethesda. You would have thought, they would have said, holy cow, Joe, you're walking. Hey, that's great, right? What's the first thing they say? Who told you you could carry your mat? Isn't that interesting, right? John just uncovers immediately the heart of these Pharisees. Who told you that you could carry your mat? Instead of rejoicing in the healing of this guy, you know? You see, the problem of, is, and here's where John kind of begins to shift the case study from the healed uh, lame guy who's healed to the Pharisees. And we're going to see again more of this case study next week. But here the Pharisees, all of a sudden their goodness begins to come out. And their goodness is exposed. That Their goodness is verified by how well they keep God's laws. Or how well they really keep man's laws. Because they tack on so many additional laws to God's law. And so that's, I think, true of us as believers. True of us as people. That we often try to define ourselves by our goodness. But we try to often define ourselves by our self-righteousness. It's almost like all of us has this self-righteous yardstick. You know what a yardstick is? You, know, you always got them free. When you went to a hardware store, you get a true value yardstick, right? So it's almost like many of us take our yardstick, our self-righteous yardstick, and we hold that yardstick up in our interactions with people. We, we love to do it on Sundays. Yeah, I'm good, Right? I, I fit within the confines of my yardstick, but boy, you are a mess, right? You're way bigger. You're a bigger mess. Or maybe you're way smaller, right? And so we often define ourselves, and we feel good about ourselves by using our yardstick, right? And yet here Jesus gives us these case studies. John gives us these case studies where he begins to come in and destroy our categories of goodness, if you will. You know, it's interesting that the Pharisees had a many additional laws that they tacked on to God's law, God's word. You know that they had 39 additional laws on how to carry your mat or not to carry your mat on the Sabbath. 39. 39 particular laws on how not to carry or why you shouldn't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus comes in here and begins to bust up their categories by healing this guy. They didn't have a category for a healed man carrying his mat on the Sabbath. There was no category for that. They didn't have that in their law. So all of a sudden, here's this healed guy carrying his mat, and they're like flipping through, oh gosh, that's law number, oh wait a minute, it's not in here. They didn't have a category for that, right? And so Jesus, again, breaking open, busting open their categories. I love that Jesus comes in and messed up everybody's categories in this story. Not only the healed man's categories of comfort, but even the religious Pharisees as well. And so Jesus is going after their goodness and showing them that Listen, your goodness 
categories is not enough. He's going after your yardstick, if you will. And this problem of fear, here this man, he comes to the Pharisees, or he's leaving. You know, he, we don't fully understand why he was healed and just got up and left. But he's leaving, and the Pharisees all of a sudden attack him and say, why are you carrying your mat? I don't know. You could tell he's ter- terrified, right? He's busted. They never stopped. I never stopped to ask Jesus' his name. I'm just getting out of here. So then we begin to see this problem of freedom. We saw his problem of comfort. Jesus busted that category. Now Jesus moves to this man's problem or fear or struggle of freedom because this man wasn't free yet. Look at verses 14 and 15. What does he say? John tells us verse 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, hey, you're well. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, uh, as I was studying this passage, a commentator named Leon Morris nailed this when he said that this guy, the man who was healed, he called him an unpleasant creature. An unpleasant creature. Why is that? Well, look at verse 14. Verse 14 intimates that he was paralyzed most likely because of some former sin in his life. Something that he might have done when he was... I don't know, rebellious as a teenager. I don't know. He made some mistake, did something, some kind of sin in his life. And because of that, there was lameness and paralyzing or whatever the struggle he had for those 38 years because of the consequences perhaps of his sin. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 implies, what does he say in verse 7? He says, Sir, no one's going to put me in the water. He's been there, I don't know, maybe 30 years, 38 years. Who knows how long he'd been sitting there by that pool? Maybe for years, months. Nobody, sir, will put me in the water. Why? No one wanted to put him in the water because he was so disagreeable. He was kind of an ornery old codger. You know what I'm saying? Nobody wanted to mess with the guy. He's just kind of mean, kind of angry, right? Don't touch me. I'll get to the pool myself somehow, right? And so he does. And then, and, and then he goes to the Pharisees, and instead of telling the Pharisees, I don't know who he was, instead of telling the Pharisees, yeah, Jesus, this guy healed me. I, I want to follow him. What does he do? He goes to the Pharisees and says, I don't even know his name, right? I don't know who he is doesn't even stick up for Jesus, but he flees confrontation to save his own hide, right? Doesn't, doesn't get Jesus' back. And he's fearful because the Pharisees are now on his back. Right? You know, one of the amazing things, I think Leon Morris was right when he said this guy was an unpleasant creature. I think one of the amazing things is that Jesus still pursues unpleasant creatures. Just like you and me. I love verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him I love that. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. I love that word, afterwards. How many of us in our sin, you know, you do this, you kind of fall off the wagon, right, in your sin. How do you feel? You feel like a mess, don't you? You feel like a failure. You feel like a loser. You feel like, God, how could you ever love me? I don't deserve the love. I don't deserve these people in my life. I don't deserve all the blessings I have in my life. And then afterwards, in the midst of your shame, Jesus found him in the temple. It's almost like Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. I see that you're walking now. That's great. Isn't that something? I know that's great that you're walking now. There's still more in your heart than I need to deal with. Your heart is still a train, train wreck. Go and sin no more and truly be healed, he says. And I think that indicates that Jesus wasn't very confident that this guy was going to follow through with these new realities that he'd experienced from Jesus. 
seems like he was really a weak man, kind of an unpleasant creature, a, a weak man without much spiritual conviction. But you know what? I love that John gives us this case study. Don't read this case study and think, oh, that's other people. Read this case study and go, oh, that's me. I'm the unpleasant creature here. I'm often the one without much spiritual conviction or drive. I think, to be honest, folks, that looks like this guy looks a lot like you and me. Hey, I can, I'm doing great, Jesus. Thank you for healing me. And, and, you know, thanks for forgiving me of that sin. I'm doing great, right? Or, yeah, when somebody asks you, how are you doing, right? I'm not really struggling. Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm not struggling with that particular issue anymore. I'm good, thanks, right? Thinking that, oh, just because we don't struggle with that particular sin that we're good when you have a whole iceberg under the ocean, right, that you haven't repented of. Or yeah, this issue of lust or pride or gossip or bitterness or anger, it's not really an issue for me anymore. Thanks for asking, right? Or yeah, the two of us, we've reconciled. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We've reconciled. You know, you don't kick them under the table anymore, but you kick under your breath instead, right? Maybe we want just enough of Jesus. Maybe we want just enough of His church to look good externally, right? But yeah, we really don't want Jesus. We don't really want him after our heart of hearts. We're afraid to let Jesus come and deal with all of the stink on the inside. And yet I find great comfort in this passage because I, if I honestly look at myself, I have to ask the question, Jesus, why would you save me? Why would you continue to bless me? Why would you continue to love me? Because the more and more I know and love Jesus, the more and more I see of His holiness, the more and more I see of His love and of His grace and of His sovereignty, the more and more I see of my lack of thanksgiving and gratitude, I marvel at the fact that Jesus doesn't just drop me, right? That Jesus doesn't just punt me <laughs> because I'm a hopeless case. William Beveridge said this so eloquently. He said, I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the Holy Sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of, he says. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. You know, the amazing thing is that all, you know all that Jesus got out of his work here on earth? You know all that Jesus got out of his work on the cross, his death and resurrection? You know what he got for that? A bunch of saved sinners. Right? Paul says that Christ loved the church. Christ loved you, he says. Christ gave up himself for her, the church. Christ gave up himself for you by the washing of water through the word to present you, to present his church as a radiant church without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless, right? And one day, paralytics and all, unpleasant creatures as we are in all, if you are in Christ and have trusted in him, for your salvation are going to be dancing and celebrating with Him. But you need something in order to experience this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is my prayer for you, Walter, especially going into this new year. You know, it's okay to get on a new diet, right? It's okay to, to be more faithful in your duties as a husband or a spouse, right? It's, it's, you know, it's good to commit yourself to be a better employee or to have better sales for the year. Those are all good things prayer for you in the year of 2015 is this. That you realize more and more of your paralysis spiritually. That you realize more and more 
how an unpleasant creature you are apart from knowing the Lord Jesus. You know? Because if you're lying here all these years and you're like this paralytic and you're just comfortable in your own prison, Jesus comes to you and says, do you really want to be well? I pray in this year, or even today for some of you. Yes, Jesus, I really do want to be well. I'm tired of making excuses. I'm tired of my yardstick. I'm tired of these things I use to measure other people. I want to be known by you. I want to be loved by you. I want to rest in you. I'm tired of comparing myself to others. I'm tired of living in fear of me. I want to know you, Jesus. The power of your death and resurrection. Do you really want to give up? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word does expose us to the deepest places of our life. And thank you that, Jesus, you don't leave us as we are. How awesome is it that you healed this guy of his paralysis or of his lameness? Then you let him marinate on that for a time. You didn't just immediately challenge him, heal him, and then immediately go after his heart, but you left him for a time. And then you came back and you found him. That's astounding. That's grace. And you do that with us time and time again, that you come back and you find us afterwards when we struggle, afterwards when we've blown it, the day after when we feel like a wreck. You come and find us again. And you love us. And you are not content nor will you ever be content to leave us as we are. But the promise is that those who are in Christ Jesus, you will be faithful to complete the work of Christ, of God, of the Father in us, of making us more and more like Jesus, of freeing us more and more from our sin, and enable us, enabling us in this life more and more to die unto ourselves and to live unto Christ. You are absolutely committed to making us more and more fit for heaven. God, we long for that. We look forward to free from our sin, to be fully free and not able to sin any longer. In heaven, there will be no more bitterness or unforgiveness or lust or pride or gossip. But we will be content with being fully known and fully free and fully worshiping and loving and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we long for that. I pray that if there be any here this morning who don't know that, maybe they've lived a, a long life of religiosity, a long life of pray, Lord Jesus, in your kindness as the great physician this morning, would you give them the final full diagnosis that they are dead in their sins and transgressions. Apart from you, they cannot have life. They might trust you now for the first time. You might draw them to yourself this morning. They might be converted and have new life in Christ. Pray that now. For those of us who love you, Lord, who follow you, Lord, help us in this year to grow more and more in the awareness of our sin. And then more so, more and more in the awareness of the grace and the love of God. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand.